Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, November the 1st, 2022. Uh, Halloween is over. Now we're moving to Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, regular viewers of the show know that we've been featuring a lot of writers who are going to the Miami Book Fair on November the 13th to the 20th. Um, and I'm hoping, uh, and I know the organizers of the fair are hoping that people will go to Miami, the physical place, a place of sun and other kinds of uh, sensuous delights, at least in the way that um, uh, Miami presents itself to the world. Um, we did a show about uh, the future of the world as analog, in other words, physical rather than digital last week with David Sachs, who is actually going to the Miami uh, Fair. But one area where um, over the last 25 or 30 years where the future hasn't just been analog, it's certainly been digital, is not Sachs, but sex. And we're talking about that today with Samantha Cole, um, who will uh, be in Miami on the 19th and 20th. That's the real Samantha Cole, not uh, uh, the virtual one. Uh, she has a new book out. It's out in the middle of November, How Sex Changed the Internet and the Internet Changed Sex. Uh, Samantha is joining us from uh, Brooklyn, New York. She's also uh, a writer uh, from, for Vice Magazine, a, a tech expert. Uh, Samantha, why are you going to uh, Miami? Why not just send your avatar? <laughs> I got to be there for the sun and the beach, honestly. It's dark and sad in Brooklyn at this time of year. <laughs> no, I'm going to experience the amazing Miami Book Fair. I actually didn't know there was a huge prestigious book fair in Miami until I was invited. So I feel very out of the loop, but I'm excited for the first time. How do you feel? I'm not sure if you've had a chance to look at uh, David Sachs's book, The Future is Analog. Uh, he had a book out, um, uh, I think, in 2016, which was actually a bestseller, uh, a defense of the analog in the face of the digital revolution. When it comes to sex, is the future analog? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think you can really separate uh, the digital and the analog when it comes to sex a lot of the times. I think that's something that um, the book that I wrote touches on. I actually haven't read David's book. I need to check that out right after the show. Um, but yeah, yeah. Be an interesting conversation. I don't know. Whether yeah. I, I know he's going. Maybe you and he will be doing a panel yeah. together or something. Yeah, definitely. I'll definitely need to meet up with him and connect in Miami. That sounds fantastic. But yeah, these are definitely related conversations for sure. So um, I'm not going to ask your age in public, Samantha, but I'm guessing <laughs> that you probably were, you were on the cusp of adulthood in the mid 90s when the internet grew up itself, when AOL seemed to change everything. Why this book from your own personal point of view? You're a tech writer, so it's obviously an important subject, uh, but how is sex on the internet changed or not changed your life? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you were spot on, I'm 33. I grew up with the internet um, kind of simultaneously while it was also growing up. Um, a lot of the, the topics that I write about in the book happened in the early chapters in the late 60s and 70s and then into the 80s. 
um, which was before my time. But the things that happened then really influenced, you know, what followed and what we're seeing today. Um, yeah, I, I grew up kind of on these message boards and forums and making friends online that way as a teenager. Um, you and... mean making sexual friends or real friends? No, or not quite yet. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was a little too young for that. I mean, I, my experience with the early internet was very, um, wholesome, I guess. I really didn't, um, I didn't kind of experience the big, like, what people talk about, like the jump scare of like seeing porn for the first time. That was kind of much later in my life. I was very um, kind of sheltered away from that stuff. So now that, you know, I'm, I'm writing about it full time for a living. It's so fascinating to me. Um, but yeah, I, I made a lot of just like friends to talk to, you know, I was 13, 14 years old. Um, I just wanted to kind of experience new and different perspectives and hear from different people around the world. And um just have fun with it that way. And it was very kind of pure and, you know, <laughs> simple in a yeah, way. It's you know, a little I, different I, than what I, we get today. Yeah. I, I'm not convinced that, or certainly uh, I wouldn't be alone in claiming that sex is somehow impure. The early argument <laughs> for sex and sexual identity about the internet was that it literally freed people from their closets of one kind mm -hmm. or another. Homosexuality, ideas yeah. on gender, types of sexual activity we engaged in. Is there some truth to that? Did, um, in the second part of the title of your book, which is actually in, a, in an interesting way, perhaps more interesting than the first part, um, we know how sex changed the internet, but how mm -hmm. did the internet change sex? Yeah, I mean, you're you're exactly right that it, it very much opened up people to new experiences and things that they couldn't quite access in the real world um, yet, or they didn't feel empowered to do that. They weren't out of the closet yet, or maybe they didn't know they were into certain things that they kind of found out about through the internet. So, um, you know, from my point of view, I think that definitely is one of the ways uh, the internet changed sex, is it changed the way that we access it. Um, you know, our, our sexual identities are... Uh, very much part of us. And if you're able to find a community of people who are into the same stuff or, um, you know, are into something that you are just now learning about or opening up to a different kind of sexuality, then you can transfer that into the real world. We saw people, um, you know, acting as, you know, uh, avatars and versions of themselves that they wanted to be online. Um, and then they could go do that in the real world if they wanted, or it could be total pure fantasy and they could keep it separate, but yeah. Conservatives might be listening to this and concluding that the internet's a bad thing. I think conservatives are very suspicious of the internet, so <laughs> certainly when it doesn't conform to their version of the world. Yeah. Um, but the internet encouraged and even insisted on a what you might call a, a sexual fluidity. Do you think mm -hmm. there's any truth to that? I mean, did, yeah. uh, before the internet, was sex was as apple pie as apple pie, or as <laughs> apple pie, and then afterwards it became quite different. No, I think people were still experiencing and feeling the same things that they felt, um, you know, before the internet, and they kind of had the same kind of experiences with their sexuality, but maybe they weren't able to be as open with it. Um, maybe they they didn't have that kind of like minded community that they could. Um, tap into and say, hey, 
I'm into this. Is anybody else? Um, so yeah, it definitely, it didn't invent anything new. I don't think, although in some cases, in some fetishes, I think it definitely did invent some new stuff, but um, the, the experiences people have on the internet were kind of drawing on what they felt in real life in a lot of, a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't agree that like the, the internet kind of created these like problematic, uh, <laughs> sexual urges or something as you you mentioned probably conservative yeah i mean that's that a way. conservative take i think <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh progressive or sexual progressives might suggest that it, it was a form of liberation conservatives yeah. would argue that it was a form of uh, i don't know what word they would use a sort of propaganda in a way yeah. or forcing people to behave in ways that weren't natural to them yeah i mean that's an old argument that i know you you know your book is a is a is a history uh, mm -hmm. You begin, or one of the earliest stages, are with um, uh, a, a woman called Lena who was in Playboy uh, and the what uh, Wyatt at least called the patron saint of JPEGs. What's so interesting about this Lena woman? Why is she important in the history of the, the Playboy centerfold that helped create the JPEG? What's so interesting about her? Yeah, so Lena was, um, she was a centerfold in the, um, I think, November 1972 issue of Playboy. Um, so a classic and, uh, early yeah. 70s Playgirl, mm -hmm. uh, you know, go centerfold. Uh, yeah, she came to the... She seems very wholesome now in, in 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard to believe that this picture was like scandalous. It's, she's very, you know, like tastily, like covered in a boa and got the the little hat and is kind of like coyly looking off to the side. Um, but she was in Playboy and then kind of did the shoot and moved on was like, okay, that was fun or whatever, but I'm going to move on with my life. Um, and then in, I guess it was, you know, a couple years later, um, she was in that, you know, somebody had that issue on hand at um, this laboratory that was working on image processing um, and they were trying to figure out how to standardize the way that we process images so that, you know, many different labs could work together on the same projects. Um, but someone had the, the Playboy on hand, you know, it's like, how did it get there? Nobody really knows or wants to say, but, um, they were like, oh, this is perfect. This is colorful. It's different. Um, it's got a human in it. So we can kind of get, you know, some of these like, um, different like eyes and features in it. Um, and they scanned it in and started using that as the standard for how to process images. And then it spread like crazy all over. Um, I think partially because it was from Playboy and people were just like, oh, let's see the the image standard that they got from, from Playboy, but it was cropped, just her face. <laughs> so yeah, she, she ended up being inadvertently um, the face of what the technologies were that then would make JPEGs and image processing possible. And that's well, why we have the big deal about JPEGs. I mean, would it be fair to call them digital photos yeah. suited to the internet? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what they were working on. They were working on ways to kind of display these images on screens um, and send them around the world. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean, specifically mean, you know, they were just trying to reach the JPEG. It was, you know, they were trying to get to some file format, some um, version that could work across many different screens and look high quality and look the same. Um, so yeah, you know, we have, you know, GIFs and PNG and all these other file formats to, um, we have Lena to thank for those too. So, yeah. Subtitle of your book is un an unexpected history. Another way of putting it would be from, 
from uh, JPEGs from Lena to um, <laughs> to uh, the metaverse. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we've done a number of shows uh, on the metaverse, one with Matthew Ball, who has a new book out, mm. uh, the metaverse and how it will revolutionize everything. Is there a, a narrative, a straight line between the invention of PDFs and Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse? He's betting the company on it. A lot of investors are actually rather <laughs> dubious. The value of Facebook over the last uh, year has dropped 750 billion dollars which is quite an achievement really yeah yeah it's impressive right it's to lose that much money quickly um yeah uh yeah i mean the metaverse i've been working a lot about uh working on a lot of stories about the metaverse just in the last year or so just because it is such a hot topic um and i know matthew ball is a, a huge voice in that too um actually he's his book is on my to be read list um but, I personally, yeah. not don't tell him this, but I think it's a pretty bad book. But you know, he's, a, he's an early stage evangelist. He, yeah, he's not really like you. He's not a real journalist. He's selling the idea for <laughs> one reason or another. I mean, he's a yeah. I guess he's a metaverse, a meta metaverse consultant. So he believes in yeah. virtual reality. You are yeah, he's invested in it. I'm hoping. Yeah, I'm a little more skeptical. I definitely am. I'm more of the mindset I think of like normal consumers who are very skeptical that this is going to be a thing. Um, but at the same time, you have tons of people living and working actually in virtual worlds currently in like Second Life and VR chat and all these different platforms that are working that are not applying the lessons that they learned to then the metaverse that Facebook and Meta wants, which is very sterile and clean and focused on being in the office and looking at ads. Um, so yeah, I think I'm a little more, I'm very skeptical of the metaverse as something that is used by corporations. Um, I am actually pretty optimistic about the metaverse as something that users and normal people can find and gather in. Yeah, and build I, mean, really aren't. I mean, especially when it comes to sex, there really aren't any normal people left, are there, Samantha? <laughs> no, I guess not. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny to see Facebook and Meta try to create a metaverse without sex because all of their right, are very uh, anti-sex. If, if there's a, a reincarnation of, of John Winthrop and the early American Puritans, it's um, it's, it's Mark weird. Zuckerberg and he's yeah. banned sex from, from Facebook. So if if sex does take off on the metaverse, it's not going to be on meta, is it? No, and it's actually, it's already a huge thing in lots of other platforms. It's already happening. And that's, I think, part of the draw for a lot of people is being able to connect in that way. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a huge um, mistake to not let it into their metaverse. But it brings, you know, its own problems and moderation issues and stuff like that. So how do you separate it. in your book sex and dating and love? We did a show with Laura Kipnis. Mm -hmm. just after COVID about love in the time of contagion, the diagnosis, her analysis of dating and love in the age of COVID. Uh, your book deals with, I guess, sex in the age of COVID. How do you separate love, uh, dating and sex? Are they all part of the same thing or do you try and separate them? I mean, I think um, there's a there's a chapter on um, the history of and the implications of online dating and the Internet in my book also. And there it, there have been many books about that on its own. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, the best dating sites, according to uh, uh, CNET, eHarmony, Bumble, Hinge, OK, Cupid, Cupid and Happen, which is interesting that 
grinder isn't on that so yeah that is interesting i'm su i'm surprised i haven't heard of happen actually that's a do to me uh, <laughs> are you um are you someone who's done much online dating i haven't actually done a ton i did quite a bit not quite a bit but like enough to get a taste for it um in i guess like 2011 12-ish um and that was kind of before people were uh, really accepting that, you know, when you introduce yourself and your partner, you could say, oh, we met on Tinder. We met online. People didn't really yeah. do that then, at least in the small town that I was living in at the time. Um, it was very odd to be like, oh, you know, we didn't meet at a bar or at work. We met through this app. Yeah, it's amazing um, how mainstream Tinder's become. I, I was, um, I, bump in, I bumped into some people I hadn't seen for many, many years, people of my age in their early 60s, mm -hmm. and they just, I don't think they've been married, but they just sort of quote unquote hooked up. I said, where'd you meet? They said on Tinder. They went in yeah. any way embarrassed. No, no, no. Yeah. How, and this is in a way my read on how change since how sex changed the internet and the internet changed sex. It's really normalized. I mean, people will talk about this stuff, just meeting online, but meeting on pretty explicit networks like Tinder without any kind of embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a positive thing. I don't know how you feel about it, but I think it's definitely, it was, you know, people did it before and they just lied about it. You know, like I would, I would tell people, Oh, this is, you know, this is my boyfriend. This is the guy I'm seeing. I met him at a bar, which is technically true, but we met through Tinder and decided to meet at a bar. You know, it's like, why do the, the second step of like hiding that you met on Tinder? Now people just say it. Um, so I think that's great. Um, that people do that now. I think it's very, I think probably the apps have done some really interesting and maybe not great things to like the way we interact romantically and socially. Um, I think that that's a complicated topic that probably experts <laughs> are better suited to speak on that than me. Um, but it did open up this very immediate um, pool of people who are right near you, who you can just meet up with and go on a date with immediately. and. Um, I don't know. It's, I was on, I got back on the apps a couple years ago, like, you know, four years ago before I met my current partner. And I was like, this is, this is terrible. I don't like doing this at all. It's, and I think that's the experience of most of my single friends. They don't like doing it, but it seems to be the only way that you meet people nowadays. So it's definitely a big way that I think well, you know, has changed sex. Was, yeah. Yeah. It was the only way you could do it. What about the relationship right. between sex and pornography and the way in which pornography is perhaps undermined, even corrupted sex, certainly love. Many years ago, I did a, an interview with Pamela Paul, who then now, she then she went on to the New York Times. She was the editor of the book page. And now she's doing other stuff. What's your read on, on the relationship between sex and pornography? Pornography now seems on the internet to be ubiquitous and very yeah. easy to access, especially for children. Um, do you believe that porn changed the internet and the internet changed porn? I think definitely porn was a huge influence on how the internet um, was built and changed. A lot of the, the things that we use on the internet every day are because of people who started porn sites and then wanted to make them better, make the internet better to consume that kind of content. Um, things like shopping carts are because of porn sites, um, browser cookies, user tracking. A lot of the stuff that we take advantage of today um, came from entrepreneurs who wanted to sell sex online. Are there particular ones who you note in the book? 
I didn't realize they yeah. did shopping cart. Who, 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 what porn entrepreneur uh, invented shopping carts? Um, I think that was, that might actually have been porn. That was probably, I'll have to look that up. It's been a bit since I dove into that one. That might've been one of the dating sites, but it's like they, these people who are running these websites needed a way to keep um, track of who was on the sites for advertising. Um, so, you know, that was kind of an uh, attack on effect as they, they had to invent ways to kind of keep like, you know, IP addresses and things like that, ways to make sure that yeah. people were of age. It's always even. A, a cliche that, that the first, the, the, the real innovators, especially in the 90s, were the, the porn people. And then, yeah. mm -hmm. and then came everybody else. Is that true today in the 2020s? I think it is. I mean, I think a lot of the mainstream sites that we see today are first built by sex workers and by people who are in the porn industry. Um, they're popularized by them. Um, you know, you look at a site like even Twitter. Um, Twitter is like 13% or something of its uh, total users are adult, like yeah, making adult the, content. The, ver the verification charge that now Musk is debating, some people don't yeah. like it. I mean, for a porn star, that $20 a, a month is meaningless if, if it generates some significant business. For ordinary people, again, for people not in the sex business, uh, it's it's a less justifiable charge. Yeah. I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms. Um, I know you talk in your book about Jenny Cam and the birth of sex cam industry. That's had mm -hmm. a, a huge influence, not just on sex, but on sex workers. And, mm -hmm. and I can see the argument it's actually been good for sex workers rather than having to stand around on a street or in, in someone else's um, apartment or house. They can do it yeah. from their own home. Yeah, the, the webcam in general has been huge for the adult industry and for people's ability to make a living in it. Um, like you said, like it's it's opened up um, this whole ability to make money online um, in a safer way, um, in a way that makes them, you know, a living. They can pay their rent without having to kind of meet in person if they don't want to. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely the webcam was popularized by people like Jenny um, who she, she was just life casting. She was, um, yeah. streaming her whole life, you know, 24 seven nonstop and whatever happened happened, but people watched it because they kind of wanted to catch, you know, a lot of people watched it. I can, I can't speak for everybody, but people watched it because they wanted to catch her, you know, like bringing a date home or getting changed yeah. or something like that. So it was a little bit of like salaciousness to it. Um, it was her bedroom after all. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but the webcam definitely yeah, opened up this good market. Businesses I mean, it's pretty, I mean, I'm not sure about all of it, but a lot of it is very traditional. I mean, it's basically digital striptease. You pay yeah. to watch a woman or a man, but mostly a woman, undress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Flaunt herself. I mean, there's nothing very radical about that. You just rather than going to a strip club now, you go online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not, it's well, really not that, reinventing the wheel. Right. So how did that change sex? I think that, I mean, like, like you were just saying, and um, like we were discussing, it's definitely just changed the way people can access it. Um, it's changed, you know, the, the well-being of the people making it. Uh, they can make these livings at home. Uh, they don't have to have agents, which is huge. You, you certainly can, and a lot of people do, but you don't, you don't have to work with a middleman to start in the industry. Um, you don't have to pay like a producer, a production company, you know, you don't have to forfeit your rights like to your image and to your content. You can keep all of that if you're making it yourself at home. 
Um, so yeah, I think it kind of uh, deconstructs a lot of the ways that the porn industry was working before. And a lot of the ways it wasn't working, it was, there were a lot of really problematic things going on in the porn industry that uh, being able to do it online um, gave that power back to the workers and to the people um, in the industry themselves, which I think is great. That's a good thing. What about giving power to the consumer? The idea of the consumer being able to friend, to finance even mm -hmm. uh, sex workers. Do you think that's changed sex much that we can each have our own almost personal stripper of one kind or another? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, there's definitely pros to that too. I mean, you used to have um, someone on like a DVD box and or a poster, and that's kind of how you knew that performer is you associated with them, you know, their movies, and you didn't really have a way to talk to them, so to speak. And now performers have the option to kind of talk to their fans online. They can interact with them in a very direct way. Um, so yeah, I think there's still very much that line between like this is my online persona and this is my work and then this is you know my personal life which is maybe more off limits um and that's made it a little harder because you do have that direct access you can kind of dm a performer and you know say whatever you want um within you know like reason of the platform but maybe that's not always a good thing maybe it's harassment um so yeah it's there are definitely pros and cons it's like anything else um when you have more access you it opens you up to more um more issues in the long run, but it's changed things quite a bit, I think, for workers. Yeah. Samantha, your book mostly focuses on the US. What about impact on more traditional societies? We did a show a few months ago with Mansi Choksi, an Indian writer on love and marriage in modern India. We talked a little bit about the role of the internet. Has hmm. internet had a more dramatic impact on a more traditional society like India when it comes to sex and sexuality? I can't imagine that it couldn't. I mean, I I can't see how that wouldn't be the case. <laughs> I can't. I definitely can't speak to that at length. That's um, not something I have a lot of experience with. But it's something that I'm definitely interested in. Is kind of broadening my my horizons toward more international and global stories because you know it's people in in countries where porn and porn is banned or demonized um, even more than it is here uh, are still accessing it. They're still getting around. Um, you know, bands with IP uh, VPNs and things like that. So it's still something that's like infiltrating societies. But um, yeah, like you said, these, these societies are very conservative and, um, you know, the, the implications are much more serious than logging on to, you know, a porn site in the States. So yeah, I don't know. I'll have to look into that more. That's definitely interesting. I'll check out that episode that you, you did with her. That sounds really great. Samantha, do you dedicate how much of a uh, part of the book, do you dedicate to AOL, America Online, which dominated the Web 1.0 age. And mm -hmm. then, of course, we had the Web 2.0 revolution and Google and Facebook and Twitter. Um, it, it seems to me that AOL was formative, uh, especially its chat rooms, maybe not so much in the distribution of sexual imagery, but in how we thought of ourselves and how we talked to one another. Um, mm -hmm. How important do you think AOL was? I think AOL was huge. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in the AOL age, <laughs> so maybe I'm biased. Um, I think AOL was definitely a big part of, um, like we were talking about before with people, you know, discovering and finding um, more open communities to talk with. That was something that was definitely big with AOL. You could find a, 
a chat group um, that was interested in, you know, it was maybe all gay men or it was, you know, all, all kinds of queer people or maybe it was you were looking for something that was specific to your own experience and you could find that um, through AOL chat rooms. Um, and AOL actually had a big um, role in harm reduction as far as sexual health. Um, they did a big uh, a push for um, getting the word out in the 90s about, um, you know, syphilis outbreaks and things like that in certain communities like in San Francisco. Um, so yeah, they they had a huge role in, in this sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I... I mean, you can't really overstate the influence AOL had. And quite a bit of that is is in the book, yeah. <laughs> it's not surprising. Uh, and your book, the subtitle of the book of how sex changed the internet and the internet changed society is an unexpected history. What for you is the most unexpected thing about sex on the internet and the internet in the, in the age of, uh, shall we say, permissiveness, which perhaps not uncoincidentally began uh, in the 70s and 80s at the birth of the internet. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think the the unexpected history part of it, I think, um, I think a lot of people kind of see porn on the internet as a thing that like, some people do and some people partake in and you know, maybe it's not for you. But um, that's fine for them. Or maybe you think that's bad or whatever. Um, but I don't think people really realize the ways that it shaped, um, how you use the internet, even if you don't look at porn. <laughs> um, so I think that's maybe the unexpected part is just, you know, the, the legacy that, um, adult content and sex and porn and all of these things. Yeah, is it um, possible? Has. Maybe I'm just bored of sex myself. I shouldn't say that publicly, but is it possible <laughs> that the internet just kind of made sex boring i mean when i looked at the headlines on the verge and on the washington post and and, and in your site uh, uh motherboard i mean there's not a lot of sex um mm. are we just is it just become just completely normalized you can do anything you like online it's not news and it's not really controversial outside a few hardcore yeah. conservative networks yeah, I think part of that, part of why you don't see a lot of um, sex and explicitness when you're just looking at like the general internet um, is because um, the platforms that we share these stories on don't. Yeah, but my my like point it. is, it's not news anymore. No one really cares. I mean, yeah. Musk is in the news. You brought up the issue of. Um, porn stars paying for their brand online, but it, it's just it's it's not a hot subject. Yeah, it, it's very normalized now. Um, I think, yeah, definitely people people are used to it. Um, people are used to talking about uh, their porn habits. Even um, some people just aren't shy about that anymore. So yeah, it's it's um, definitely a lot more more normalized than it was. I don't think that's entirely a bad thing. It's makes it a little harder to write about it because you know you have to get people's attention in different ways. But um, yeah, it's probably something. Well, to maybe that's ironically enough. That's the most unexpected legacy of sex on online is it um is it's made sex boring i don't know uh, we'll have to see. Uh, anyway i got through that interview samantha without making any sex jokes so i'm <laughs> proud of myself for that uh, i'm sure that um in miami someone in the audience at least will oh, ask boy. an inappropriate question but i won't be there so you can't blame me for that but congratulations on the new book it's a very interesting subject and a nicely written book 
Thank you. You're very well positioned as a tech journalist and obviously as a woman to write this. So congratulations. Thank um, you. What else are you reading these days? What other books would you recommend? Oh, man, I am reading. Hmm, I feel like I've been in such like research lands that I'm just now getting back into normal work. I actually just started The Digital Closet by Alexander Manea. Um, it's it's about, well, the subtitle is How the Internet Became Straight. It's about uh, the ways that we've kind of um, pushed a lot of these different identities out to the, the margins. So I just started that. Um, but yeah, I'm also reading um, getting back into some fiction. I just read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Levin. That's fiction um, about Great title. gamers. Yeah, it's a beautiful title. Um, and it's a it's a beautiful book. So I would definitely recommend that. Um, yeah, I just I just uh, put Daniel Citron's The Fight for Privacy also. Yeah, she said Daniel's been on the show. So. Oh, really? Oh, I just talked to her this morning. <laughs> 